Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series in the life of Jacob with James Jordan. And here, Jordan's going to be in Genesis chapter 49, verses 13 through 21, looking at the blessings for Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. As always, we invite you to check out those show notes. We have some Psalm chant videos down there, so we invite you to check those out and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We are currently in the midst of an ongoing series on the book of Revelation with Peter Lightheart. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing Genesis chapter 49 in the life of Jacob. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 13, we've looked at Reuben, Simeon, and Levi who were set aside. And then starting with Judah, we have the blessings and their kingdom blessings that are given to Judah. And I think that, as I showed you last time, I think that from Judah to the end of these blessings on the tribes is a structure with the statement, for your deliverance I wait at the center. But be that as it may, we'll now look at these other tribes. And I'll read Zebulun, Issachar, and Dan, at least. I know we can get that much done, starting in verse 13. Zebulun. On the shore of the sea he dwells, or better, toward the shore of the sea he dwells. It's the word to, which can, like prepositions in any language, doesn't overlap our prepositions at all points, so you have to figure out exactly from the context. But it seems better here to leave it as to or toward. Zebulun, toward the shore of the sea he dwells. He is a haven shore for boats. His flank, or rear, upon or toward Zidon. Better again to say toward. Because this kind of a picture of a big animal here. And then Issachar, a strong-boned donkey, crouching among the fireplaces or pack saddles. When he saw how good the resting place was and how pleasant was the land, he bent his shoulder to bearing and so became a laboring serf. Dan, his people will mete out judgment to all of Israel's branches together or to the community of Israel's tribes. May Dan be a snake on the wayside, a horned viper on the path who bites the horse's heels so that his rider tumbles backward. I wait and hope for your deliverance, Yahweh. All right. The first thing I've got down here under Zebulun is that Zebulun and Issachar are the sixth and the fifth sons of Leah. So why are they reversed? Maybe to put them in alphabetical order, which would be the case. Z comes before I in the Hebrew alphabet, but... It's not the case with any of the other tribes. Is it to link them up so that by doing them in reverse order, we consider them as kind of like one big double tribe instead of two separate individual tribes? I don't think so. I think that the reason Zebulun is taken up next is because he has somewhat kingly association as well, and some of the language from Judah is really being picked up and applied to him. What's described here? If we translate it the way I think we should, and other commentators and translators have, Zebulun, toward the shore of the sea he dwells. He is a haven for boats with his rear upon Zidon. If you 
draw your map. Here's the Sea of Galilee here in the Mediterranean Sea. Zebulun is here facing the Sea of Galilee with his rear facing Sidon. And it's like a big beast sitting down there. And, of course, Judah has just been pictured as a large beast. And here, geographical imagery is linked with it. Well, what does Zebulun mean? It means the honored one. Jesus was from Nazareth in Zebulun. And Jesus fished in Galilee. So Jesus is definitely a long-term ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy here. Jesus does these things. That's where he grows up, and he spends so much time on the Sea of Galilee, and a lot of his disciples are from that area. And so my guess is that Zebulun follows Judah because it's also a concealed messianic prophecy. You wouldn't get that if you don't know the answer. You can't figure that out until you get to the New Testament. And actually, you can't figure it out unless you draw a map, because the word Nazareth never shows up in the Old Testament, so... The only reason we know it's within the territory of Zebulun is to look on a map and we see where it is and we see where the boundaries of Zebulun are. And what do you know? Jesus is from Zebulun, geographically speaking. So Jesus is genetically, on his human side, from the tribe of Judah. And geographically, he's from Zebulun. And so having Zebulun come next is accounted for in terms of the prophetic meaning of the passage. Then we go to Issachar. So that's my guess. Why answers this question that really is an important question. Why would God change the order around here? This is not the order of the tribes in their birth order. And why switch it around? Well, switch it around because Zebulun has this particular role. And putting him right after Judah is fitting. With Issachar, we get a blessing that some have considered to be a curse. And if you were to study this out... You'd find there's a debate about old Issachar here. What's being said about him? Issachar means man of hire or hired man. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Does it mean he's a slave? That he's an employee and not a lord? Or does that mean that he's just such an excellent guy that everybody wants to employ him? It's nice to have so many degrees and so much experience that when you go out to get a job, they're five or six large corporations are chopping at the bit to hire you and each one's offering you a higher salary than the previous one. One of them says, we'll give you $90,000 a year and you'll get an annual trip to Acapulco and we'll give you all this medical insurance and we'll pay for your kids' college tuition and all the rest. And the next one says, no, but if you come out here and work for us, we'll give you $100,000 a year and two trips to Acapulco every year and whatever. That can also be a hired man, can't it? So what kind of hired man is this? And obviously I'm going to argue that he's the second kind, that this is a blessing. It's a blessing to be a hired man. Just as some people have the talent and the ability to lead and rule, not everybody has that talent. And the idea that everybody ought to be in charge of his own business and all that is foolishness. Some people have no ability for that at all. And they wouldn't enjoy it. But what they do have the ability to do is work hard for somebody else and do an excellent job, and they do enjoy that. So the 12 tribes here are giving us all the different pictures of what it's like to be in a kingdom, and Issachar is the guy who really likes to work. He doesn't have the ruling talents. He's got the working talents. And I've got down here, if Zebulun gives us another semi-kingly picture of a crouching animal, 
like Judah's lion, Issachar gives us another picture of a strong, kingly man. He's very strong. And this is the same progression we see in Judah. In verse 9, it says about Judah that he's like a lion. And in verse 10, it says he is like the human king sitting on his throne with his scepter and having his children issuing from between his legs and having a dynasty coming from him. And then it talks about how he takes his donkeys and ties them to the vine. Well, here's Issachar. The first thing we read about Issachar is he's a donkey. So Issachar is like the servant of Judah in context. This is what we were reading and following the flow. Judah has a donkey that has got so many blessings that he gets tied to a vine and gets to eat all the grapes he wants. And Issachar here, well, what do you know? Issachar is one of those donkeys. So he's like Judah in being a strong man, and he's like Judah's servant, like his donkey, which is a good thing to be the donkey of a king. A lot better than being a donkey of some poor old guy out there who can't feed you very much. Being a king's donkey, you get lots of good stuff. You get to eat the grapes. So now what does it say? What is the question here? Issachar, a bone-strong donkey. I probably read that backwards, just dyslexia of old age. A bone-strong donkey. He's got it. We could probably say strong bone, and it'd be just as good. Crouching among the fireplaces, it says here, places where there are fires, or pack saddles. He doesn't give you that, I don't think. I don't think there's any footnote there. No, he doesn't give you that option, but most of the commentators, this is one of those words that only shows up once in the Bible. And we're not absolutely sure what it means, so we look at the Ugaritic, and we look at other Northwest Semitic languages, and we look at Akkadian and Assyrian, and we try to find similar words and say, okay, what do these similar words mean in these other languages? So once you've done that, then you go back to Hebrew and say, this is probably what it means. We do this within Indo-European languages. I was listening to a lecture the other day, and the speaker pointed out something that I'd never known. But the head of the Greek gods is Zeus. Zeus is just another form of the word Deus, just softened up. Deus, Zeus is the way, Zeus is the way it's pronounced in Greek for Zeus. And Deus is the word for God, or Deos. In Latin, it's Deus. The word for father in Greek and Latin is pater. Now, if you say Zeus the father, Zeus pater, say it about a hundred times, and you get Zeus pater, Zeus pater, Zeus pater, and you get Jupiter. So the word Jupiter in Latin is the word Zeus the father from the Greek. It's just contracted out. Well, if you didn't know what Jupiter meant, you might begin to figure it out by looking at Greek, which is a similar language. We've got this problem here. Here's this Hebrew word. I didn't write it down because who cares? I mean, you and I aren't going to remember it. But nobody knows exactly what it means, and they look around at these other languages, and these are the two options. He's around the saddles of the packs as he's out working, or he's out by the fires that are burning out in the countryside where he's out working. Either way, he's out in the field working. He likes that. This guy enjoys work. Or else he's a slave. When he saw how good the resting place was, see, he's resting just as Judah is resting on his throne. When he saw how good the resting place was and how pleasant was the land that God gave him, he bent his shoulder to bearing and so became a slave, basically. That's the way many translate it. In fact, I'd say that's the majority opinion. I don't think it's right. 
He's got down here. The Hebrew mas oved denotes forced labor. That's what Fox says in his footnote on verse 15. Well, it doesn't have to. And other commentators have said no. All it has to mean is that he's willing to work hard. And I think these aren't blessings. There's no reason for Issachar to receive a curse here. And it's true that in the book of Judges we find that Issachar was reduced to servitude for part of his history under these Canaanites, but all the tribes failed to conquer the land and came under the dominion of Canaanites from time to time because of their failures. And You might say this is an ambiguous promise here, but I think it's much better to take it positively. He finds a good land, he enjoys working it, and he works hard. Enjoying working hard is not a curse if that's what you enjoy doing. And some people do. Some people really enjoy physical labor. I cannot imagine. I talk to people that say, I went out and ran two miles this morning. I just love to run. Well, I have tried. I have never enjoyed running. I enjoy walking. But I have never enjoyed running. I used to have to do it in the Air Force and everything. Go run a mile, run a mile and a half. Try to do it every day or every two or three days. I never got to where I liked it at all. I just don't get a thrill out of physical exertion. Some people really do. They enjoy physical exertion, makes them feel good, and hey, different strokes for different folks. Issachar is one of those guys. So I think this is all a blessing here. Hard work being given the talent for hard work, and then the blessing is to be given a place where you can do it, and it's productive. See, if Judah has the talent to rule, then his blessing is he's given a place where he can rule. If Issachar has the talent to work hard and really enjoy it, then the blessing is he's given a really productive land where every seed he plants gives a hundredfold and he can go out and spend his time by the campfires at night and enjoy just the kind of life that he likes. That's the blessing. Zebulun, hey, this guy likes to fish. I have never understood people who like to fish. A few times I've tried, I was so bored. Some people just love to do that. So fine, hey, this is the blessing to get to do what you were made to do. When you look at the history of the world, most people don't get to do what they were made to do. They're stuck in societies where they are forced to do what their daddy did, whether they're any good at it or not, or they're in prison or someplace else. So it's a blessing to get to do what you were made to do. And I think that's what's underlying all of these. Well, now we come to Dan, and boy, if you know the future of the tribe of Dan, how it was the tribe that went apostate and did all these bad things, and it even gets dropped out in the book of Revelation as Dan is just gone. They're eliminated. You would think, well, if he's going to prophesy the future, he's going to say bad things about Dan. But he doesn't, of course, because Samson is from Dan, and pretty much it's Samson who's described here. And once again, this messianic stuff is a thread through this entire passage. People say, well, Judah is messianic and the rest of them is kind of miscellaneous. But no, we need to understand that Jesus is not just the new Judah. He's the whole new Israel. And all of these things, in one way or the other, probably have messianic overtones. And some of them rather pointedly so. And the things that are said about Dan have always been taken until the last couple of hundred years as pointing to Samson. And some of the evangelical commentators still do it that way. The word Dan... You may remember the word Dan means judge, one who judges. And so when it talks about Dan, his people will judge, it's a play on his name. He's a judge. 
And then the way Fox has it, he's got two all of Israel's branches together. You can do it that way, or you can translate the word branch as community, and the commentators prefer the phrase, he judges to the community of Israel's tribes. He meets out judgment to all of Israel or to a community of tribes. Well, who does that? Well, Samson does it. Samson is the great judge. And Samson is the one who is like what we read in verse 17. We're supposed to be wise as a serpent. Well, what about Samson? Well, he's the wise judge. He's the riddle master. He's the sphinx. He's like a lion, and he is a master of riddles, dealing with the Philistines who are Egyptians. So he's the true sphinx who has power and riddles and wisdom. May Dan be a snake on the wayside, a horned viper on the path. That's the wisdom of Samson. He's very smart, probably the smartest of the judges. Who bites the horse's heel so that his rider tumbles backwards. That's a description of his activity. Samson is the master of the sneak attack. He always is just when he does it, but you never know when Samson's going to be around the corner with a bunch of foxes or something. So these are good descriptions. And when you look into the future to see a fulfillment, it's very easy to see Samson. And then the statement, I wait for your deliverance, O Lord. Well, Samson is the great deliverer. And Samson begins to deliver Israel. Maybe I can find this real fast. But Samson doesn't fully deliver Israel. In the days of Samson, this is what people would have prayed. They would have said, Samson's doing a lot, but we still wait for the full deliverance from the Philistines, which is not going to come in Samson's day. I don't think I'm going to find this. But in Judges, it says that the Lord began to deliver Israel through Samson. I should have looked it up. It's in chapter 13, 14, or 15, or 16. Somewhere in the Samson story, the phrase is, he began to deliver Israel. But he doesn't finish it up. Samuel finishes it up. You remember Samson dies and he kills all the army officers and all the kings and all the aristocracy and all the priests of the Philistines, all five city-states. They're all wiped out when that palace falls down on them. Well, the very next thing that happens, if you study the chronology, is that Samuel blows the trumpet, and then they have this battle, and they drive the Philistines out. Samson and Samuel are the same age, and they're contemporaries. And Samuel leads in this victory over the Philistines immediately after Samson defeats all of their heads. So he finishes the deliverance, and really full deliverance from the Philistines doesn't come to David. But again, this phrase here in connection with the tribe of Dan, Dan starting the deliverance, causing people to hope in a deliverance, works very well with future events and what's being prophesied. And also, as I showed you in the diagram last week, I think this is central to the prophecies. This is right in the middle of the blessing section. And so the whole notion of deliverance and a future Messiah, deliverer, king is in the background here. It's woven through. And part of that, we look for a chiastic structure, we look for a center, and then what's on either side. Well, notice the next tribe, Gad, on the other side of Dan, very similar language, similar situation. 
And then Asher, talking about food, is going to match with Issachar, who has the good land. So this would seem to be the central phrase. We're looking for the deliverer, and that's a clue. These are all pictures of the deliverer. The deliverer is like a lion who rules on his throne. A deliverer is like one who spreads out in the Galilee area and is a fisher of men. A deliverer is one who works very hard like Issachar. A deliverer is one who meets out judgment as Dan does. And now we come to Gad. And I'll read verses 19 and 20 and 21 because we're going to get through all this today and that will be good. So verse 19, Gad, goading robber band will goad him, yet he will goad at their heel. Now that's not an accurate translation, but it is a musical translation. Literally it's this, Gad, raiders will raid him, but he will raid at their heel. But as I'll point out to you in a minute, it's a pun in Hebrew, and that's why Fox has translated it with the word goad, which is just like Gad. Asher, Asher means happy. Asher, his nourishment is rich. He gives forth king's dainties. Naphtali, a hind let loose. That's the traditional translation. Since we don't use hind in modern English, it would be better to say a free-running doe. Who gives forth lovely fawns. Then we come to Joseph, and Joseph is a big section, and we'll do that a month from now when I get back from Russia. So let's look at Gad. Gad means fortune. And the opposition between having fortune and having raiders come in and steal your fortune is the byplay here. The man who is identified with riches and fortune, raiders will raid him. But the word raid in Hebrew is written G-D, just as the word gad is written G-D. So Fox has very cleverly come up with the word goad for raid because goad sounds like gad and just brings into English exactly the way this sounds in Hebrew. Gad, goader will goad him, and he will goad the heel. That's as short as you can make it, and you can hear the sounds. Well, this matches what was said about Dan. Dan is one who bites the horse's heels, you see, and Gad is one who goads at the heels of the raiders, who raids at the heels of the raiders who come in to raid him. He chases them back out of the land. So, what is Gad? Well, Gad's out on the frontier, and he's defending the frontier, and so he gets raided from time to time, but he drives them out. So, he's messianic in the sense that he protects the land. He's out on the edge of the envelope taking the risk and keeping the enemies at bay. Then we come to Asher. Asher means happiness, and what is described is the rich food that grows in his territory. His nourishment is rich. He gives forth king's dainties. What matches that above is Issachar. Issachar works hard in the land. By implication, it's kind of daily bread that he's working for here. And Asher is providing the riches and luxuries. Again, notice the word king here. He gives forth good food for the king's table. Again, all the tribes are royal in a sense. They all have aspects of royalty and of messianic blessing. Messiah will be like this. Messiah gives forth king's dainties. See, if Jesus is Issachar, Jesus works hard and gives us bread. And if Jesus is Asher, then Jesus gives us wine, which is a king's dainty. Use this word dainty here. doesn't really work for me, but I didn't get a thesaurus out to find a 
better word, king's special foods, would be implying wine, rich foods, special foods. And finally, naphtali. Naphtali. This one, translation requires a little work. What does this mean? Well, I tell you what, all of a sudden, this one verse gets three or four pages in the commentaries because the translation is tough. I don't think it's that tough, but it can be. depends on whether you want to make it tough or not. Naphtali means struggle, and if you remember, Rachel named him this because she viewed herself as struggling with Leah. Naphtali was the son of Rachel's handmaiden. And she said, with great struggling, I've struggled against my sister, and now at least I have, you know, this second-class child that'll be part of my household. And she names him Naphtali, meaning struggle. Well, a free-running doe is a good description of Rachel. Rachel is like that. But if you look at it in Hebrew, it says, Naphtali, a free-running doe, he gives forth Fawns. Well, all of a sudden, we're moving from feminine to masculine. A doe, not just a deer, but a female deer. So, there's grammatical gender questions here, although it's kind of obvious the tribe is coming from Rachel and is feminine in that regard, and it's a tribe of Israel who is a man, and so it's masculine as well, and there's no real problem there at all. Who gives forth lovely fawns. He's got here. That is a problem. If you look at it literally, it says he gives birth to beautiful speech. It's the word for language that's used there. And so you can just say, Naphtali is a free-running doe who gives birth to beautiful speech. And we can allegorize on that within the Bible, say that descendant of Rachel or of Israel is the word of God who is beautiful speech and is given birth to eventually. And there may be something to that. If you look around at other Semitic languages, this word that is always translated in the Bible as speech often means sheep or member of the flock. So he gives birth to beautiful sheep. He is a doe who gives birth to sheep. Well, sheep don't come from does. Fawns come from does. And so just by common sense, we would say this word refers to the fawns, the offspring of the doe. Or, from other Semitic parallels, or parallels of phrases, you take the whole phrase and try to find similar things in Akkadian or something, he gives birth to sheep or fawns of the fold. Not beautiful ones, but sheep of the fold. Well, I'm suggesting that the ambiguity is probably deliberate. This is a prophecy. Prophecies are always vague, almost always. Very seldom does God say, within exactly 14 days from now X or Y is going to happen now he does here and there but very often prophecies are very general so that they can have more than one application and fulfillment general language here or ambiguous language should not be surprising to us Joseph and Benjamin are beautiful sheep that come from Rachel who means you Rachel is a doe she's also a you because her name means you you lamb Making Naphtali doe means making the sheep fawns. So, an implication back to Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin are among these fawns. Words are also offspring. They're the offspring of our lips, and they should be beautiful. So it's entirely proper to translate it that way. Think of Jesus both as the Word of God and the Lamb of God. 
Now, Jesus is the true Naphtali, or the son of Naphtali, the free-running doe of Eve and Rachel. Then he is the sheep, or fawn, because we could say the fawn of God, as well as the lamb of God. And he is also the beautiful words. So I think the ambiguity is probably deliberate. And I think this generally matches with Zebulun in archaistic structure. Naphtali is a free-running doe. Zebulun is this animal that lies down with its face toward the Sea of Galilee and its rear facing the town of Sidon. Again, we've got land and well, sea and land matching each other here, an animal lying down with an animal that runs free. That seems to be the structure of the passage. And these are all blessings And they're really one big picture. So when we come back, we'll take up Joseph and Benjamin and then maybe try to look at the whole series of blessings as a whole and what it meant for the whole of Israel and for Jesus and and for us. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.